We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer... This might be your new favorite. They're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons frozen take on a cappuccino. And it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants. This is the Gator Nation football podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gator Nation football podcast. What is up? I'm Alan Williams, sitting here in Studio B, looking right at James DiVirgilio, sharing mics, doing podcasts. We're ready to do some stuff for you guys today. Hope you had a great off week. Got to watch a lot of college football. I know we did. We're going to discuss all of it. We're going to get you ready for Tennessee Martin. It's going to be a really fun episode. We're going to hire some coaches. We're going to fire them. We'll see what that looks like, James. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I spent my Saturday with a bunch of people over at the house, one of whom was... Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job and at everyday savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. You for a while and three TV screens and watched almost every football game for most of the day in and out. Uh, A few things are better than a football Saturday. It was glorious. And Alan, maybe the best part was, and we're going to talk a lot about this, we talked about the spreads coming into the weekend being double-digit spreads in almost every game, yet so many of these games delivered very fun and uh, very interesting results that we are going yeah, to Yeah, from some of the games where you wouldn't have expected to come from. Would not have expected. We're going to spend the first half of the podcast talking about that. The second half of the podcast, we'll talk about, of course, the upcoming game against Tennessee Martin. And we will talk about the Gators throughout the first half as well. There's just so many stories to talk about from this first week to contextualize, to digest, that will influence Florida 
indirectly. And that's what we're going to spend the first piece kind of catching you up on that in case you missed anything and talking about uh, the analytical pieces to what's gone on this past weekend. But first and most importantly, if you like the content, if you like the show, certainly write us a review, like us on Facebook. Most importantly, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. We love our patrons. This has been quite the week for new patrons. We want to welcome some of you. Cody Summerlin, welcome to Patron Nation. I'm making that up, but seriously, thank you for your dono. It's amazing. Eric Mutz. What up, Eric? Longtime dono supporter, friend of the podcast, upgrading himself from a small dono to a medium dono. Upgrade. Upgrade, upgrade. And then Mark Randall Holcomb, his first time coming on as a new donor. Appreciate the dono. And things went absolutely manic today. And today's Monday for us, Alan. And, and we had a couple hundo bombs. Wow. Hundo bombs get dropped in the show in the form of donos. Diego Rivera and Nathan Jeter came in hot. They were coming for Alexander Leventhal's throne. And in fact, they took it. They were both co-kings. They were co-kings for several hours. Uh, what happens when this happens is we send a message to the king of the jungle, Alexander Leventhal, and we simply say, Alexander, you've been passed. And Alexander waits about all of three and a half, four seconds to write back to me and says, oh, no, no, there's only one king of this jungle. And he immediately replies back with the the amount he's going to give, which is always some sort of symbolic number, which I appreciate. Of course, we can't share it, which then has me write back to Diego and Nathan. OK, you, you were kings for a minute or two, and then now you're back. But you're on like the king's court. You're in the king's council. You're in the room. So you have like three kings, the one main king, the undisputed champion, Alexander Leventhal. And you have two kings who are king for a minute Game of Thrones style. They're not dead. They're not axe. They're still alive. They're in the court. They're still here. They're still fighting. But we just want to say we obviously so appreciate even telling this story. It's incredible to have I got this quite level a laugh. of support I love it. from you guys. You guys are all great. I love exchanging the messages back and forth. Um, it's just fantastic. It's fun. We know that you're doing it in part to have a little fun. But we also know that every time you tell us how much you appreciate the show and the efforts that we're giving, it just means the world to us. So thank you. Thank you, Alexander, Diego. Nathan, and thanks to all of our patrons. I want to recognize some more now. Most of these people have been with us for several years, and we just want to give you a small honor uh, as much as we can here, but give you some love because, again, we, we really love you guys. We really appreciate you know everything that you do for us because, again, this show does not exist without you listening. I can assure you that Alan and I are not doing this just to listen to it ourselves. You guys have really kept us going and motivated us to become better. So thank you. I want to thank Adam Walters, Thomas Upshaw, Kyle Ikatani. Dr. Kyle Katani, recently engaged Kyle Katani. Congrats. Thanks for the support, my friend. Chris Glazier, another longtime friend of the podcast. Ryan McCann. Shout out to Ryan McCann. Obviously, my best friend is married to his sister. It's pretty cool, right? Uh, Travoose White. Travoose. Travoose, longtime supporter, friend of Alan. Scott Evely. Brian Sumner. I was friends with Brian Sumner back in college. So it's just amazing how these Glorious. things come forward, right? Yeah. James Doker. Jason Thief. And then coming down the pipe here, we got a few more I want to recognize. Jeffrey Shia, who I've exchanged several messages with. Josh Duty, who's been stat man himself on the podcast. Yeah, right. Uh, Josh Hosteller, who I've known from high school. Maybe Whoa. those are all my friends and your friends. I don't know. Maybe maybe our listenership hasn't grown at all. I don't know. <laughs> Lon Stafford, Matthew Brigman, Matthew Fry, Tyler Pierce, the man who calls himself the first fan and first supporter of the podcast. At one point in time, a co-host, Tyler Rummery. Adam Riddenauer. What up, Adam? And then Alexander Smith, who Alexandra has spent, I think, the most communication time uh, with us and with me. She's been integral helping out on the podcast on her own time uh, from California. So a lot of you live all over the country, which is also really cool. And you can kind of see the sampling as we're doing this basically by how long you've been a supporter of the pod. Uh, most of you in the beginning, they kind of knew Alan and I. 
And then as time has gone on, we've branched out and reached new people. And, and it's really exciting to see that. So thank you guys. If you are a patron, rest assured, you will get some love on this podcast at some point in time during the season. We will leave no stone unturned. All right. With that, a huge and busy weekend last weekend, Alan. And the weekend turned out to be full of great games. So what we're going to do is here, we're just going to walk through each game, the scores we talked about last week, give our thoughts on them. And then at the end, kind of sum up what this means for the Gators. What do we look like now? How do we feel about our game against Miami? Does this change our win total? And then get into some some fun stuff with which coaches, if we were athletic directors, would we know for sure we're firing? Would we hold on to? Or would we automatically just say we love these guys, we're extending them? So we're going to try to put everything into kind of a big picture frame here and look at what we should be concerned about or not concerned about. So this should be this should be fun. Let's let's start Allen with Clemson beating Georgia Tech 52 to 14, which should be a super solid great win. Yet Trevor Lawrence, he struggled. Are you worried about this? Not at all. I Georgia Tech I thought might get in a little bit of trouble, but they did not. They ran right through them. Even if there are a few bumps in the road, they seem like a juggernaut. There, no one is going to slow them down at all. I guess this week with Texas A&M might be the only time, and that's if Texas A&M is way better than I think they are. So no. Yeah, not a concern here, but I will say though the beauty of sports, especially when it comes to quarterbacking, is defensive coordinators are gonna are gonna spend their time trying to find new ways to beat you. That's true. So they're gonna take away what you do well. Jeff Collins, who of course Gator fans will remember being our former defensive coordinator, is the coach at Georgia Tech, and he clearly created a game plan that severely limited Clemson's ability to pass. Now, Georgia Tech was wildly overmatched in the front seven, so therefore they lost the game primarily with Clemson's ability to run the ball. But let's not sleep on what they just put on film. Yeah, yeah. They put some things on film that show that Trevor Lawrence did not like what he was seeing. Now, Trevor, being a young and good quarterback, will spend this week preparing for what he saw. So now he saw that, too, right. So you get into the game theory of sports, which, of course, Alan and I love. We talk about the most in this podcast. And as the season goes on, we dive more into that. But that's a game theory piece 101, Alan, where Trevor's spending his week watching film. Now their next opponent, Texas A&M, Jimbo Fisher, is spending their week watching film. And it's this, can Trevor overcome what's on film that worked against him? Can he prepare this week to beat it? Can A&M add a few more wrinkles to disguise some of this stuff? And this is where I think football really excels as a tremendous chess match sport. And there hasn't been a repeat champion for quite a while. I don't even remember when. It's been a long time. So Clemson, you know, returning champs. There's a lot of that disease of more, disease of me potential with them. Even though they seem to have a great culture, no one is above that. You know, creeping in. So Dabo and his staff are going to really have to watch against that kind of stuff too. For sure. So no concern, but it's still a recognition that for Trevor Lawrence, he is a sophomore. He'll have to learn things. And the quarterback position in general. Look, Tom Brady, the GOAT of all quarterbacks, right, will still have games that he'd like to forget. And a lot of times that is because the defense gets you or you miss a few throws here and there. But good to know. All right, Utah was only a five-point favorite, Allen, against BYU, and they handily took care of business. They look very good. A lot of people we talked about have them as their Pac-12 favorite a chance to win that conference. What do you think of them? I thought they answered all the questions for me. This is week one rivalry game. They looked excellent. So that's a tough assignment playing your biggest rival week one. And they looked great. They did. They actually looked relatively clean. A lot of these teams we're talking about looked like week one games, but Utah looks ready to play. So I think for us, we asked, are they for real? Can they live up to the expectations? So far they're, they're looking good. FAU, 
we talked about FAU, Alan. I talked about FAU this year, I think, being a much better version of themselves under Lane Kiffin here in year three. Year one, great. Year two, step back. Year three here. They go down 45-21 to Ohio State, but they made the game pretty competitive there for a while in the third quarter. What I want to ask you is, for Ryan Day in Ohio State, do you think Urban Meyer would have won this game by more, or is this about right on track? That's hard to say. My main takeaway from this is that Justin Fields looked like a legit quarterback. Last year at Georgia, every time he's in the game, he looked uncomfortable. I, and the, the question was, did they not know how to use him? Was he a bad fit? Was he not as maybe an exciting of a prospect as we thought he was? He looked legit right in that offense. Again, if, against FAU, they're going to have much bigger tests along the way. But good news if you're an Ohio State fan that the Ryan Day-Justin Fields era is off to a good start. And you had three Georgia quarterbacks get wins on, on opening day, right? You had Jacob Beeson at true. Washington, Justin Fields at Ohio State, and, of course, you had Fromm at Georgia. So that's not not too shabby there. UCLA, Chip Kelly, year two for him, goes to Cincinnati, a team that a lot of people think is the best group of five team. That's a tough place for them to play, and they lose 24-14. A, you think Cincinnati is is potentially going to going to rise to that level of group of five champs, so to speak? I don't and know. B, are you worried about Chip Kelly? I think Cincinnati too? is solid. They are who we thought they were. The real headline continues to be Chip Kelly. You know, this is what do they say about NBA draft a couple of years with the Rafters drafted drafted a guy and Fran Fischel is like he's two years away from being two years away. Like there still feels like they're two years away from being two years away. I there is some young talent on the team. But it hasn't shown up in any kind of way. And they got manhandled by a group of five team. Not a good look for UCLA and Chip Kelly. Yeah, they're not there yet. I think it's known coming into this season. We talked about them, their win total. Uh, I don't think either of us picked, predicted them to beat Cincinnati. So not unexpected here. The recruiting trail is what worries me the most for UCLA. Uh, they're, they're still just far behind there, I think, on building a quality roster. And, and Chip, you know, Chip Kelly's motivation in of itself is an interesting one. Here is an interesting result. We talked about Wisconsin-USF being one of the lower spread games. Wisconsin only favored by 13.5 at USF, coming off a bad year last year. How good were they going to be? All they did was go out and win 49 nothing over USF and new fan-favorite offensive coordinator, Kerwin Bell, who for years was rumored right. and talked about, and Gators wanted him. Maybe you don't want Kerwin Bell anymore. Maybe not. I mean, UCF, school to, USF to, also dropped, I think, 137 passes in this game. So, you know, you got to have the guys catch the ball at some point. Wisconsin looked good. USF obviously did not. I don't know if this is the definitive statement on both these teams. I wouldn't be surprised if Wisconsin isn't that good either, that they're solid. I'm not ready to crown them yet for beating a pretty crappy USF team. Yeah, I think the jury is still out for both of them, but certainly if you're a USF fan, I think the the panic button is is being. Yeah, they're not going to be good this year. I'll, I'll be comfortable saying that. Northwestern, the game we highlighted, going against Stanford, tight contest all throughout. Northwestern was supposed to actually have an offense this year. That was the whole big deal. They have a quarterback, the highest rated quarterback they've ever had there. Very excited about him. We talked about Northwestern struggles in opening games. Allen, they tend to almost lose their early season games. Close fought game. They wind up losing 17-7. I think the narrative for me here is, and yes, I said narrative. Sorry. Uh, Stanford, I don't know. I said I don't think they're that good this year. I think they showed me they're not that good this year. That's what I'm taking away from this. I think the Pac-12 is as wide open as people think it is. Potentially, yes. And I think Stanford's problem last year was their defense. And Traditionally, you know, that had been a real strength of their team. 
and they took a step back. Maybe if they ride the ship defensively and they're going to be solid offensively, maybe they can cause a little bit of a noise in the Pac-12. Although, like you said, it definitely is wide open. There's no one I feel like is a real favorite out there. Boise State. Florida State. Oh, here we go. And we're gonna have to spend some time. Let's stop. Let's let's pause here and take a breath. Enjoy, James. Just stop and smell the roses here. Really, I'd like to say this game had everything that you want. If you <laughs> didn't get to watch the whole game, let me let me recap it for you. Florida State comes out, and on offense, the Kendall Bryles, you know, son of Art Bryles, disgraced Baylor coach. They run an offense that has no playbook. And let me spend just like thirty seconds explaining to you what a no playbook offense means. Yeah, please. It's probably not what you think it is. It doesn't mean they don't have plays and they're making stuff up. It means they don't. That's the Willie Tiger. They don't produce a physical. <laughs> they don't produce a physical playbook that you can get your hands on. There's absolutely a playbook. In fact, uh, Kendall Browse has a play sheet in his back pocket if he ever had to reference it. So the plays exist. They just don't give them to the players. The players can't take them to their future schools. The coaches can't go try to get hired somewhere, showing them a playbook they have from Kendall Browse. So let's get that out of the way. So. One, that's not the case. But two, they looked really good on offense. But as is true of all of football, if you're watching your if you're watching your games in the first half and you see this happen, be concerned. Boise State was running for seven or eight yards, seemingly every carry, which is not good. They also controlled the ball for like 75, 80% of the first half, which is also not good. Then they closed the first half on an uptick. So they go down 31-19. Keep in mind that score 31-19 Allen at halftime. And we're watching thinking, we feel pretty good about this. Boise State's got a real chance to do something here. They're going to have to make some adjustments and find a way to stop Florida State. And all that happened in the second half, Allen, was that Florida State didn't score a single point. And Boise State kept driving, winds up winning the game. 36-31. What do you Wild. make of this? If you watch the first five minutes, it was pretty disconcerting. FSU was scoring on almost every play. He's huge yardage plays for touchdowns. And it was, you're thinking, oh man, Boise State is already out of it. And they almost were. They almost got knocked out in that first quarter. But they hung in. They have a mental toughness that FSU clearly does not still. And like you said, it felt like, you know, if Boise could just slow him down a little bit, they would hang in there. And I thought that Boise might wilt though in the second half. It was hot down there, humid. They're from Idaho, but they seemed to be the fresher team as the game went on. And they once FSU wasn't front running anymore, once they had to battle through to complete a few plays and they weren't just scoring on one or two plays, they really looked lost. And they were getting overwhelmed on both lines of scrimmage, which if you're an ACC team and you're playing a group of five team, you're getting dominated in the line of scrimmage. Not a good look. But it's crazy. So by the at the beginning of the game, you're thinking, man, FSU looks a lot better. They're taking advantage of these athletes. This maybe changes everything I think about them. And if you were just to turn off the TV then, you would have been probably pretty sad. But if you just kept watching, it was a glorious moment to see Boise State come back. And this game, let's remind ourselves, got moved from Jacksonville to Tallahassee. This was a home game. Not that Jacksonville was ever really a road game. Great win by Boise, and if you're an FSU fan, we'll get to them in a few minutes. And you had any hope that this was going to be a little bit of resurrection, and you probably got your hopes up pretty high in those first three minutes. They were quickly dashed. And, and Boise got paid $400,000 to move the game from Jacksonville to Tallahassee okay. and gets Florida State at home next year. 
Really? Oh, yeah. So they just hit like the mega jackpot, pulled the slot machine, mega jackpot. Boise will be hosting Florida State. But more importantly here, Alan, I want to illustrate something. We talk so often about quarterbacks on this show. And one of the things I actually do love is how often quarterbacks are being talked about in the game of football because it is the most important position in sports. The reason Boise State won was because their true freshman quarterback was absolutely impressive. His technical skills were fantastic. Stood in the pocket, moved his moved his feet perfectly well, eyes downfield, constantly kept plays alive, took big hits all game long, which allowed them to put up 600 yards of offense. That was an extremely impressive display. Something we said on this podcast about Will Greer from the beginning was guys that have the technical skills in the training, it shows up right away. There's things they have to improve on. But for this guy, for Boise State, he's a four-star recruit. This guy was not some unheralded guy. That, you have got to be thrilled beyond belief with that kind of debut. That was an exceptional, exceptional debut. And I can assure you, Florida State could never have expected that guy to be played that well in that kind of situation. So hats off to Boise. For sure. There was a ton of adversity there. I mean, getting down big early, not panicking on the road against a much more talented team, at least on paper. And here's a quick note about FSU that I saw on Twitter today. That apparently they had no defensive coaches up in the coaching box. They just has a, a few grad assistants, which is kind of mind-numbing. Uh, the, the guy commenting on Twitter was like, you know, I did a quick survey of people I know. No one had ever been on a coaching staff. No one even had heard of that before. So I don't know <laughs> what they're really thinking with that, not putting anybody up there. But that's maybe just a little window into the world of FF, FSU football right now. Uh, every time I hear stories like that, and it has to do with FSU, I love it. I just love it. Maybe that makes me just a sick, twisted person, but that's just incompetence at its finest. And that's how you allow 600 yards of offense. And I want to say something here too, Alan. We talked on the pod coming into our opening game against Miami about how the defenses that Franks faced, South Carolina, super injury depleted, Florida State, a disaster, Michigan, none of their guys playing, no effort, led into some extraordinary scoring results for us. Clearly, Florida State has major, major defensive problems. And that roster is way too talented. That's crazy. To be giving up yards like that. And so they've got issues over there. They have issues all over the place in that program. It does look like Kendall Bryles is probably going to wind up making some sort of name for himself to level jump to a different spot for him. Whole season left, but at the very least, they were improved on offense. But but Well, that almost had to be. They were one of the worst offenses in football last year, so that only could go up. They did play better. But no points in the second half. None. And, and really what Boise did, Allen, was they, they went man-to-man and dared Florida State to run the ball, which is what Miami did to us. And Florida State had no answer. They could not run the football. That offensive line continues to plague them. Oklahoma goes up against Houston. Final score, 49-31. It was not that close. Yeah, Oklahoma knocked them out early. It was 42-17. The big story here is Lincoln Riley maybe – I'm going to go way, way far here, but he's trending as the greatest quarterback coach in the history of college football. And th- and that's that's a real thing. He's trending that way. That, that's an, a real conversation wow. we can have. Back-to-back Heisman's number one pick in the NFL draft. You can find very few coaches who've ever done that. He takes Jalen Hurts, who's always been good. Jalen Hurts goes out and has his best game ever, dominates, breaks some Oklahoma records, 500 total yards of offense, three touchdowns running, three touchdowns passing. Guy looks like a man amongst boys out there. Yes, it's Houston. Listen, I got too excited. But, Alan, what do you make of Hertz's opening day performance? He looked very good. Now, I really want to see him play an exceptional defense. I don't know if they're going to see that until the playoff. 
if they make it that far. But he looked really good. You know, he's not making the kind of throws that Baker Mayfield does, but he was making a lot of throws that Kyler Murray made. I don't know. I, if you're Oklahoma, it's got to feel pretty good. And the other side of this equation, bring over Alex Grinch, former defensive coordinator at Ohio State. That was their Achilles heel. They were always going to put up points somehow. Even if Jalen Hurts was solid at quarterback, they were still going to score because of their scheme and because of their personnel. But the defense held Houston, who's a you know pretty electric, productive offense in check for most of the game until it was kind of garbage time. So if they're going to play a level of defense that's a cut above the the Big 12, the rest of the Big 12, they're going to blow people out all year long. I feel great for Hurts. I think that's what I take away from this. He he was such a good teammate. He he's such the the antithesis of what the Agreed. modern college football quarterback is right now. And to to watch him have a chance to succeed at two legendary programs, he's he deserves it. He's earned it. Patience is paying off for him. I certainly wish him all the success in the world. He's dealt with a lot, um, you know, mentally in the past year or two to kind of get past like that when you are the guy. But what what a debut for him. Something to keep an eye on. All right, the Pac-12 after dark game, something we love to highlight on this show. Typically gets wild. It got wild for the wrong reasons. USC actually looked pretty good on offense. A few dumb turnovers in the red zone, Allen. But the storyline out of here, and it's a big one, is their kind of all-world quarterback tears his ACL right before halftime, changes the complexion of the game. This game winds up being very close to the end, and USC beats Fresno State, a team USC was favored to beat by three touchdowns. So they went 31-23. And I don't, this might be one of those occasions where you say, you know, you won the battle but lost the war. We're going to talk about Clay Helton here in a few minutes, but... This is trouble for USC, for sure. Yeah, out with JT Daniels, in with a guy whose last name is Slovis, which in Slovis we trust, I guess. Maybe. There's have several freshman quarterbacks. They seem to like him. Maybe he'll play well, but another year starting a true freshman when you're on the hot seat is pretty tough. Not good. All right, Nebraska, a lot of fanfare, a lot of debut. One of the, one of the few, Allen, totally full stadiums in college football on Saturday, and that's something else we can spend a few minutes talking about, but... Almost all of these stadiums are, are 80% full. That might be even generous, being generous. Nebraska totally full. Everyone there is ready. They're excited. They can't wait for Scott Frost to take off. And they get themselves in a dogfight with South Alabama. They wind up winning 35-21. This game was close. But there were three non-offensive touchdowns in this game for Nebraska. And afterwards, Scott Frost said it was the worst offensive performance as a coach he's had as far as he can remember. They did not look good. They did not look ready for week one. When you're playing like a team like South Alabama, if you're Nebraska, you want to really put the screws to them and, and win big. This was way closer than they want it to be. I don't think I'm ready to say Nebraska's not going to have the kind of season they wanted to, but a lot for them to improve. Yeah, it's very important not to draw too many conclusions from week one. Sometimes you can when there's more of a history, uh, like we're going to when we do the, the coaching segment. But here for Nebraska, definitely not what you wanted to see. They'll have to show improvement here in week two. Virginia Tech, a team a lot of people, including myself, had on sort of the turnaround season list, uh, having a nice year, maybe even a nine-win season this year, comes out against Steve Adazio's Boston College. Steve Adazio is still at Boston College, by the way. Still doing a very nice job there. Very nice job there. Boston College wins 35-28. Virginia Tech turns the ball over like 68 times. Again. And Boston College turns it over no times. Um, and that's that's the story of this game. And so, again, turnover played Virginia Tech on the road, loses 35-28. Uh, 
this is a bad look, I think. Yeah, this is tough. Tech fan. This is not good. I don't know. I don't want to, again, say too much about Boston College or Virginia Tech from this game. But starting with a conference game in your opener is a challenge. But Virginia Tech does not look like the team we expected them to be when Justin Fuente got hired. And we're going to talk about him a little bit more, a little bit more in a minute. But I don't know if I'm hitting the panic button, but I'm I'm hovering over it. Northern Iowa on the road against Iowa State turns into maybe the most entertaining game of the day. A lot of you probably didn't watch this. You have to have all of the channels on DirecTV <laughs> right. to see this game. We watched it. It was absolutely insane. Triple overtime. Iowa State beats Northern Iowa. There was, if we were doing a podcast on this one game, Alan, we could spend an hour breaking down the decisions that were made at the end and in overtime and very conservative by Northern Iowa in multiple situations. Insane plays on both sides. Any concern here for Iowa State? Yes, I think so. Not that Iowa State is ever, you know, you can't ever be comfortable and like you think that you're a juggernaut, but you had high hopes for the season and all that's still on the table. But this has got to be very much a, I don't know, ego check for them if if they needed one. Or maybe just a reality breaking into them that this is going to be a tougher season than they thought. But when you don't have as much talent as a top-tier program, you're, these types of games are potential for you because you can't just show up and be unprepared and still win the game. So I, not that they're saying that they're unprepared or badly coached, but that's still where they are as a program, even if we think that they can make some noise in the Big 12. All right. Each and every week during the season, we will do the SEC Roundup. And so we save some of these national games. Uh, they're also on the SEC Roundup. So that's how this will go. So let's start with the biggest one. Yeah, let me walk through these, James, for let's us. Go, let's go. It starts off, Alan. All right. Let's do the big one first. This was wild. Number 11, Oregon. Number 16, Auburn. Oregon 21, Auburn 27. A wild game. Auburn scores right at the end. How are you feeling about Auburn? How are you feeling about Oregon? We were watching this game with our good friend Chris Musgrove, who also actually rather not so randomly co-hosted an episode of this podcast, true. which is great. And he is, as much as you're a Gator fan, he's an Auburn fan. And he's got his wife there and his kids there, and they're all decked out in Auburn gear. And he's living and dying with every moment in the first half. And you know, it's fun to it's fun, honestly, Alan, to watch someone else experience Sweat the highs it and lows out. you experience as a fan when you're when you're objective. This game was was a classic Gus Malzahn special. And also a classic Oregon versus an SEC team special. They come yeah. out sort of on fire. No one can stop them. Their offense looks electric. And then the bigger, stronger, more physical SEC team tightens the windows, adjusts to the kind of gimmicky plays they're running. And then before you know it, Oregon can't score anymore. This game could have obviously gone either way. I think the most fascinating thing for me was when Musgrove, that's why I brought him up, sends us on our text thread the play of Bo Nix's dad basically doing the same exact thing in the Iron Bowl, however many years ago that it was. Same kind of throw, same kind of area of the field. It's, it's actually really bizarre for them to win this game in, in a walk-off fashion, which how many amazing games, Allen, has Auburn been a part of where they win at the last This is the second? most Auburn game of all time. Frustrating in parts, incredible ending. Their offense, you know, Musgrove was talking about it. They can't pass unless there's some kind of misdirection. You know, they just run such a gimmicky kind of offense. When it's rolling, it feels like it's unstoppable. When you don't know what they're going to do, they struggle to get untracked for a while. But they went a little heavy. They took out a wide receiver, put an extra tight end. And then they started really grinding it out versus Oregon. 
that front started winning those battles. They started running the ball in the second half. And then defensively, Oregon couldn't do much in the second half. All those sweeps to the outside, Auburn started containing those. And they just kind of closed in the field on them where they really couldn't do much. This was fascinating. I loved it at the end. It was crazy that they attempted that pass with no timeouts and a true freshman quarterback. But it's Auburn, so it worked. Unreal. All right, let's go on to the next one. Man, if you're a Tennessee fan, this is just brutal. Georgia State, 38. Tennessee, 30. Maybe the worst loss in Tennessee history. This game, this hurts me, actually. So as much as I love to watch Florida State lose, and I've said this every year of the podcast, I actually want Tennessee to win. Tennessee... They have the most rabid fan base. They're the most fun team to play, in my opinion, when they're good. They're just incredible. There's there's nothing else like them. And I just so desperately, Alan, want them to be back and to be good. And they're not. And this game is not a fluke. Georgia State whooped them. This is not a surprise. Let me tell you a little bit about Georgia State. They're, They're predicted this year to finish dead last in their conference, which is actually a pretty good conference of, you know, kind of a very small school set of conferences. Appalachian State's in there. Georgia Southern's in But there. still last. But still last. Last year they won two games. This year they go on the road to Tennessee as 27 or 8 point underdogs, and they just they just hammer Tennessee, right? They, they really take it to them physically. They run all over them. This, this is, I think without a doubt, one of the two or three – lowest points for Tennessee and so afterwards I went onto their message board something I love to do to see what the temperature is like and what I saw was an absolute not a meltdown just an ending you saw so many people posting I've been a Tennessee fan for 40 years 50 years 20 years I'm 30 years old I'm 60 years old this is the end for me I can no longer support this I'm going to do anything else I'll mow the grass I'll watch someone else play I cannot handle it anymore my heart cannot handle it anymore because they were cautiously optimistic this season was going to be good they are supposed to have a lot of talent they return a lot of players you can't lose to Georgia State but the one that sums it up the most Alan is a poster just sadly says we are Kansas now wow and the reality is they really are. If you look at how many years they've been this futile and to lose to Georgia State at home as a once SEC power, Tennessee won a national championship. This is an unbelievable, consistent fall from grace. This hurts. This hurts beyond, I think, what they can even handle. Yeah, they're not Kansas, but this is a low in a decade of lows or 20 years of lows, maybe. This is this is pretty tough to swallow. Um, man, I do feel bad for them. This is not, you know, us losing to Georgia Southern when the wheels are to come off our season. Embarrassing, but it was what it was. This is the first game and you have some hope and this is supposed to be one of those cupcakes that you consume and move on, but not the case. All right. Missouri 31, Wyoming 37. This game was at Wyoming. I don't know why Missouri is playing this game at my, at Wyoming. Wyoming took it to them, ran all over them. Man, another really humbling loss for the SEC East. They ran for 300 yards. Uh, Missouri jumps all over them early on. And JT Raymond, also co-host, friend of the podcast, is is telling me at, at my house, he's there, he's watching with us, about how 
I told you, Missouri's so good. Missouri's so good. Wyoming's terrible. I've done my homework. And, um, <laughs> the classic, I've done my and, homework. And JT, of course, is right a lot about football predictions, certainly. So that's that's nothing to take away from him. But it does illustrate kind of the excitement of the early start. Kelly Bryant's there. Look at Missouri. They're really good. And they, they collapsed. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Wyoming. That was a great atmosphere there. This is one reason why I wish in college football more of this stuff happened. It was phenomenal to look at Beautiful. Wyoming. Stadium packed. Beautiful environment, SEC opponent there. They were so excited for this game. Rush the field. I mean, it's great. Like, this is good. This is so much better than watching, you know, FCS teams play, in my opinion, Division One teams. But for Missouri, you had a lot of hopes. This is year four for Barry Odom. This team was supposed to be good. You got who you wanted. You had an offense that was moving the ball like Drew Locks last year. And yet again, Barry Odom, a defensive coordinator, can't stop Wyoming's run game. You're an SEC team. You can't stop Wyoming running the ball on you questionable here this is a tough tough loss for Missouri this is this is a gut check this is another one of those where are we right now as a program losses Missouri is crazy though they they'll do this kind of stuff and then come back and win eight games so I'm not writing them off yet South Carolina 20 North Carolina 24 return of the Mac gets a win here against Muschamp I mean South Carolina had this game in the bag went of course ultra conservative Muschamp style and lost it you're seeing a theme here that the SEC East is terrible, which is what I want to say. We went through the schedule, and I said, look, I don't care what people tell me about Florida's schedule being hard or the third hardest in the country. That just cannot be true because we're playing teams in the SEC East. These teams are not good. And, Alan, you and I had the very conversation, well, why am I picking us to win these games? Because these teams have way more questions than we do, which is which is obviously completely true. South Carolina blows another double-digit lead. They're second of like the past six they've had in the fourth quarter to a Mac Brown North Carolina team who was terrible last year. Although I'll defend North Carolina, they lost like six games last year at the last possession. So they're not a bad football team. Certainly they're right there with South Carolina, but you can't keep doing what Will Muschamp does. They punt on fourth and six inches on the 49-yard line with five minutes left. And South Carolina basically never got the ball back. North Carolina took the ball from their own five-yard line Drove them the field, scored, kicked off. That was the end. So to me, South Carolina fans, we knew this when they hired Will Muschamp. You knew exactly what you were getting with Will Muschamp. This guy hasn't changed at all. He's not a new man. Stuff's not different. He's the same kind of guy. They're paying the price. I think they're over it. And oh, guess what? He has a colossally huge buyout. If there's anything Will Muschamp does extremely well, it's yell at things punch whiteboards, and get massive buyouts from schools in the SEC. I love it. Huge, huge buyout. He's going to be there for a while. Get used to it, Gamecock fans. All right, let's keep moving here. Georgia, 30, Vandy, 6. Are you, Is this impressive for you from Georgia or not? It was if you press the pause button the first 20 minutes into the game because Georgia comes out and looks like the best team of the day. You had Alabama, which we're going to get to, coming out very slow. You had Georgia coming out, just destroying Vanderbilt, a team that historically plays them interesting for at least moments. And that's what actually wound up happening, is Vanderbilt clamped down on them, really stopped their offense entirely. Georgia had an extremely hard time scoring. Uh, I think this shows the issues Georgia has uh, in general. They're super solid, obviously, across the board. They have a great running game. Fromm makes good decisions. They just tend to lack... Whatever that extra little it factor is that like top teams have, Georgia doesn't like wow you week in and week out. We talked about it last year too. Like there's this weird thing they do. Now they cover the spread. Vanderbilt's not terrible, so these are all good things. Road win, SEC opener. They played clean. I'm not taking anything away from Georgia, but you kind of expect them to jump out like that and say, okay, this is this is it. This Georgia team. This is the one that's going to get over the top and beat Alabama. 
this is the one. They're going to show me this by just pulverizing Vanderbilt. But they don't. The game gets tight, actually. Kind of slow down. They finish it off again. So I'm, I'm, if I'm a Georgia fan, I'm stoked about this win. I think we looked great. I think there's plenty to build on. I think the team looks like what you expect them to look like. But maybe I just want to see that extra just little, file that extra little, little piece. Yeah. Just that extra little piece I need to see from them. I still don't see it. All right, we'll keep going. Duke 3, Alabama 42. For as lopsided the score is, like you said, Alabama started a little slow. A lot slow, and I want to give JT Raymond a chance to have something said publicly. So if he's right, he'll get the acknowledgement. If he's wrong, we can all let him know. He has a narrative. Yeah, a narrative. This is a good narrative, though. He has a narrative that Alabama's program will, will rise and fall, essentially fall with Steve Sarkeesian as an offensive coordinator. That's the thesis. And so, of course, as they keep showing Sarkeesian during the first 20 minutes of the game and Alabama hasn't scored yet, it's only kind of furthering this thought process. Um, Alabama themselves, however, I think would blame that on their offensive line. This is the the least sturdy offensive line they've had probably under Nick Saban. Um, so they've got some gaps there. I think they struggled. Then they obviously turned it on. They won pretty easily. Uh, 42 to 3 is the final score, right? So they smacked him. But I think Alabama may have shown that they're maybe they're vulnerable this year. I don't know about that, but... And David Cutcliffe is a good coach at Duke. Duke is not a sad sack program. They hung tough for a little bit. I don't want to, again, Alabama normally cruises to these wins and they come out and just crush people. It ended up being that score. It just took them a little while to do it. All right, Ole Miss 10, Memphis 15. Memphis was favored by five, and they won by five, so I guess that's it. (laughs) I mean, Ole Miss looked so bad on offense. This is a team with Tamu and those receivers who could put up points, and they looked abysmal. This shows you the importance of a quarterback. I mean, obviously, same coaching staff. Last year with my guy, I love Tiamu, my guy, they're lighting up scoreboards. They're scoring 50 almost every game, except for when they play elite competition they just couldn't match up with. Now they go against Memphis, a team that has no defense, literally doesn't play defense at all. They score games in the 50s regularly. They can't move the ball. Matt Corral, former Gator commit, was horrifically bad. I mean, there's no other way to say it. He was absolutely terrible. He cost them a win in this game. I continue to think that the Matt Luke is an interesting guy at Ole Miss. Like, the team played hard. They played ready. Memphis is most people's pick, Allen, to be the best group of five team. A lot of people think they could go undefeated this year. They could unseat UCF. This is a good football team, and they're playing on the road. Ole Miss, you're one of the worst teams in the SEC. Should you win this game? I don't think so. Should you have done better than that on offense? Yes. Quarterbacks mean a lot, and that's what I want to put here. Is obviously it's not like all of a sudden these coaching staffs forgot to coach. The lights are on. Matt Corral struggled big time. He has no experience in college. Does this mean he's gonna be bad forever? No. Is this a bad loss for Ole Miss? Actually, oddly, don't think so. It's a weird. It's a weird loss. Like I, it's just honestly looking at it, what it was. Memphis is probably the better team. Ole Miss could have won this game. They fought hard until the end. I continue to just wonder, what do I do if I'm an Ole Miss fan? I don't even know. Maybe I'm just giving up on them and I'm apathetic. I can't figure out what I do if I'm them. It's not a bad loss, but one day I'm going to have to ask you how much Matt Luke pays you to prop him up every week. You'll you'll finally show me the checks. All right, we'll keep going. Texas State 7, Texas A&M 41. Anything to say here? Yeah, Jimbo Fisher is amazing. And if you're a Florida State fan and you were one of the many that thought that Jimbo Fisher was your problem, show yourself, please. Because a lot of you thought that. Wherever yeah. you are, you thought that. Own it. And, and you're insane. All of you are insane, and you're getting what you wish for now. And meanwhile, Texas A&M is slowly building a juggernaut. Toledo 24, Kentucky 38. Pretty close. I mean, some people had Kentucky on upset alert. They took care of business where their compatriots in the SEs did not. 
So I guess decent win. Toledo's a decent program. Yeah, I mean, but, take care of business, but Toledo had a lead in this game. Was very they close did. For a while. Kentucky looks exactly the same to me, which maybe is scary for Gators. Their offense is a ridiculous combination of high school and Madden. I mean, they can't throw the ball. And when they do throw the ball, it's, it's 30-yard jump balls. Like, it's like, if again, if any of you ever played Madden, that's what you do, right? You run the ball. You run some little screens. You have little gadget plays you like. But eventually, you just throw Hail Mary to you know, whoever it is you want it to be. That's what they do. Like, four or five of their passing plays were just 40-yard jump balls that they came down with. They, were, they, they weren't fortunate to win the game. They played well in the second half. They deserved to win. I don't think this Kentucky team has that extra little momentum factor they had last year. Uh, but they at least proved to me, out of some of these other SEC teams, that they're, they're cagey. They'll do things. They'll make plays. So Yeah, so could, it, you're on a relative curve here with Kentucky, right? Kentucky of old probably would have lost to this Toledo team. This is a better version of Kentucky. Can they match what they did last season? I remain doubtful, but they're they're still a little bit dangerous, much more so than vintage Kentucky teams. Okay, Mississippi State 38, Louisiana Lafayette 28. Closer than they want it to be, I think. Yeah, this is my guy, Joe Moorhead, my other guy in the SEC, who I think has a potentially high ceiling. He's recruiting very well there. New quarterback and sling it. That's something we talked about. Absolutely much different looking Mississippi State team. Way, way different than what you've seen under Fitzgerald. I mean, just totally different. Lots of vertical Indeed. routes, lots of middle passes. I think that will get better. The defense, they lost almost everything. Lost a lot of guys. So you expect them to take some time to have to figure that out. I think this was a very underwhelming debut. They got up by three scores. Kind of like they're going to run away with it. Louisiana Lafayette kind of got back into it. So not a horrible debut from them. I still think if you're a Mississippi State fan, you're probably cautiously optimistic that things could go in the right direction. This season will tell you that for sure. But definitely already a much different looking offense, which I think has got to give you comfort. It kind of tells you what we've been telling you with Moorhead is that he's kind of he was surviving the transition to a real quarterback. I think things will look different as the season goes on for them. Portland State 13, Arkansas 20. Portland State is a team that's spunky. They beat Washington State, I think, last year or the year before. Arkansas has lost some of these games early on. So it was close. They won it, which I guess is good if you're a Razorback. I'm going to put this as as good win because of what you just said. Portland State's beaten Power 5 teams. Arkansas is clearly in the midst of of a rebuild. They're not ready yet. And you have to win some of these games. This is not, you know, Alabama or Florida State or Florida or Miami or whatever. This is Arkansas, and they need to win some of these games sometimes. You've got to take your humble pie and recognize, yes, you're in the SEC, but yes, you're not there yet. So you just keep winning. Just try to win games at Arkansas to build your recruiting base to get yourself back up. And and right now, I think that's the stage they're at. And I don't think anybody watched this game. I did not watch one second of it. But you'll take the result, I guess. It's much better than a loss at this point in the season. All right, this is this last game is probably the type of game most of these teams on this slate were hoping for. LSU delivered it. Georgia Southern 3, LSU 55. Let me ask you this. This is the main thing that people are wondering about LSU. Obviously, a lot of talent. Defense is loaded. Are they going to look any different on offense? They say every year it's going to be different. Was it any different? Well, you and I in the pregame prep show looked up Joe Brady. This is what we do, by the way. We're not going to give any secrets. We certainly aren't gurus, right? But we do research uh, as time goes on and filter that into our existing knowledge base. So who is Joe Brady? I asked myself. Well, I typed into Google, and we find out that he's a 28-year-old who coached with the Saints. He's their passing game coordinator. So he's bringing the Saints concepts, which are really a mixture of spread with like pro-style running concepts, which is why they did it. They want to run pro-style run, but they want to pass the ball spread. So there you go. They have an NFL offense now that's not old school NFL. It's not play action heavy. It's spread passing heavy. 
great. I love that concept. I think that's fantastic. All they got in their debut was basically perfection. Joe Burrow comes out and they just annihilated Georgia Southern, who is not, by the way, a team you just roll over and destroy. They're consistently good. They are predicted to finish top or right near the top of their conference, the Appalachian State this year. They're probably going to win at least seven or eight games. Like you said, Alan, this is what you want a power SEC team to look like. You want them to do this to a team that's overmatched, which of course Georgia Southern was. They looked exceptionally good. Now I don't want to I don't want to take too much from this game because it's easy to do that given these other games we've looked at. And go, wow, look at this. But safe to say, your question is answered. This is not the same LSU offense. It is an entirely different approach to how they play LSU football. There, it will be fun and interesting to see what happens this week against a marquee opponent in Texas. Right. How will that work? I think Joe Burrow, we talked about it last year. He's very, very smart. He's very accurate. Doesn't have the greatest arm strength. You don't need it for the kind of offense they're running here. I think he's got all the tools to be able to trigger man this really, really well. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do this weekend. But if you're an LSU fan, I think you're sky high right now. Indeed. With the Ed Orgeron superstar coordinator experiment going on with him. Well, here's what I want to see. When it starts to hit the fan and things get a little tight, do they revert back? Because this, you know, Joe Brady is the passing game coordinator. He's not the offensive coordinator. So obviously he's flavoring what they're doing, bringing in some route combinations, some formations, but he's not the one pulling the trigger. There's Ensminger and then above them Orgeron. So do they live out new LSU when things get a little tight? We'll see. All right, this is the big question I want to ask you now. We've just put all these games, a lot of them, because a lot of them meant things, I think, to this question. How do you feel about the Gators' win versus Miami now that we've gone past week one and watched these other teams play? Sure. I I feel better about it. As it's gotten further in the rearview mirror, I think looking at some of the turnover luck, things that were stacked against us, normally if you put that kind of product on the field against a relatively good opponent, you lose that game. So I think I'm more thankful for the win. And yeah, people ask me, oh gosh, you know, are we are we terrible? I was like, no, we're not terrible. We did not play well. We ran up against an opponent that knew what we wanted to do, and we were pretty conservative. That's not going to lead to an explosion of points. But I, again, I, I feel like if we play this game a hundred times, ninety of them we're going to win by twenty. Because we would have gotten on top of them. They would have had to pass more. And you saw it happen when we knew they were going to pass. They could not do it. We would have put way too much pressure on them. You look at look at all the sacks. That we, we could have had even more sacks. And, again, some of that is a freshman quarterback holding the ball too long. But we dominated from the defensive front. And I don't think we'd make as many mistakes as we did both on offense and defense. So the further I get away from it and seeing some of these really crazy week one results – it was a sloppy game for sure. It was a dumb game for sure. But I think everyone in the program is really thankful to have a big win on their schedule, having a bye week moving into the real quote unquote start of the season against Tennessee Martin. I think the flash test is this because obviously we watch the film. I can look at the plays. I think it was fun, Alan, that we came out with our podcast last Monday and literally said, Here's what we did. There were lots of big plays available. We broke down several of those plays. And then on Wednesday, Dan Mullen did the same exact thing on his film breakdown and basically said what we said, which isn't because we're geniuses, but it, it illustrated something. It's just we right there about. to see. The play calling was good. We could have we could have really moved the ball much better. That's important. We've mentioned that many, many times. With due respect to some of these other teams, we're not going to do that. So we don't really know if some of these schools that were close had a ton of extra plays. If you just watched the Gator game, 
and you were casual and you just watched some of his other games, there's something that does stand out. It was clear about our game that we had some elite things that flashed at you. Our defensive line and the pressure on Miami was absolutely extraordinarily high and what you would call elite. Our corner coverage was extremely good for the most part, right? There's things that were bad, like any college football team like we talked about. But I think when you're looking at some of these teams, what you're looking for is, do they have something that flashes as elite? And like we said, Alan, the Gator game against Miami illustrated exactly what we were. We're a tier three team that has some things that flashes really strong. And we're a team that has some question marks that look really ugly. And that's where we are. But a lot of these other teams are not at that point in time. And in fact, they may not have anything that jumps off the screen as you as, wow, that's really great. And I think that's what I take the most from this is having watched so many games this past weekend. Yes, there's the Alabamas, there's the Georgias, uh, there's the Ohio States, there's the Oklahomas. Those teams are are in a different category than we are. You can immediately tell that. They're well-rounded. They play consistently across the board. But we do have something these other teams don't have. And we survived, which you said, really a statistical almost anomaly. And what you said is true when you're looking at something, you want to look at the probability of something, a probability cone. You say, how often would these two teams, if they played each other, win or lose? And then how often would these results occur? We were in the very bottom of the variance level, right? We're the very bottom end of that statistical range. And we still won, which is big. We said that on the podcast. That's very, very big. Most teams, when they turn the ball over four times like we did, are not going to win the football game against a reputable athletic opponent like Miami. And with Miami's fumbling 30 times and us only recovering one, if you don't get that kind of fumble luck back in return, you usually are going to lose the game as well. Correct. So I'm with you. I feel we felt okay about it afterwards. I think what we said that's still still true is we had expectations of a certain level. I'm holding my hand up here, and we were certainly beneath those. That doesn't change. What we should all take from this is that college football is not the NFL. The NFL actually gets four preseason games. In college football, you get none. We live in a day and age when most teams are not practicing tackling each other or hitting each other, So, which means they're not really playing the game of football, but they're playing on their first opening week. There's a lot of rust out there. That's what's going on. There's a lot of rust. The coaches are rusty. Coaching decisions are rusty. And so I think we saw us beat a quality opponent on a big, big stage. We saw a lot of other schools not do the same. Most importantly, we saw the SEC East really falter. Right. Does this change your win total for the year? It doesn't because I felt like we get to 10, and I think the quality opponents still looked good. LSU looked very good. Georgia looked very good, right? And those are two of our losses. Uh, Florida State for a second, it's like maybe they'd be more cagey. But the way they're looking, that's heading in a different direction. So I think I think I feel good about where we are. I picked a win over Missouri. Maybe you want to consider changing that no, one. But I, it's also Barry Odom time at the end of the year. Yeah, so November, up. Missouri, I still can't pick us. I mean, Missouri could lose every game, and I still would be tempted to pick them to beat us in that game. I feel like I'm emotionally scarred, so that's affecting me. I would say I feel more confident in that nine wins because of how the Kentuckys, the South Carolinas – of the world looked so not that they can't win against us. Cause we're not at that level where we just roll it out there and they're not going to touch us, but feel a little more confident. So I wouldn't up my win expe- expectancy. I don't think um, I do think we have the possibility to get tripped. We saw it against Miami. We could have lost that game, but maybe a little more confidence in that nine win projection. And that is illustrating the almighty importance of a win. There you go. We lost that Miami game. That question, none of this makes us feel any better. But thankfully, we've won. All right, let's talk about something I'm really excited to talk about. We watched the games on Saturday, and you and I were sitting together. I said, Alan, we got to do this segment. We have to do a segment like this because we love talking about this. And first, I want to ask you this question. Who, who is lower 
program-wise right now? Florida State or Tennessee? Oof. I would maybe have to say FSU because their fall is more dramatic and more recent. Tennessee, it's been a long time. And I don't think anybody thought Jeremy Pruitt was – it's not like they hired Urban Meyer and then he lost to Georgia State. FSU is stuck under a rock, and they have a lot of stuff going against them. They they lost money as an athletic department. There's no way they can fire Willie Taggart. And if you just kind of peek your head up just for a second, oh, maybe – and then you get your head lopped off again. So I don't know. That's I would love to take a poll of them and if they could answer honestly how they're doing right now. But maybe FSU is a little bit lower just because of the recency and the dramatic nature of that fall off the cliff. I'm going to take Tennessee because of something you actually just said. You said Florida State's athletic department doesn't have quite the resources to afford that. Well, fun fact, Alan, Tennessee spent the most last year on their recruiting, football recruiting. They spent the most. They factor in facility upgrades, things they do for the recruits, attention-focused. Tennessee wants so badly to be relevant again. I think if you're honest about Florida State, I question how often they even care. Florida State boosters, do they even exist? Do the fans exist? That's an opening game against Boise State. You get a half-empty stadium. discounted steeply. Half-empty stadium, and by halftime, half of the half-empty stadium leaves. They just don't care. And I'm not saying this to dog Florida State, but even when things are horrifically bad at Florida, you're getting 60,000 people there. That'd be a great day at Doak. Tennessee, they live, they breathe, they want this, they're spending money on this, they're spinning their wheels on this, and they lose to Georgia State. Ultimately, though, Alan, I want to go back to one big decision because life's about decisions. Tennessee could have had Mike Leach. That's true. They had Mike Leach. And And instead, they wind up two years later losing to Georgia State with Jeremy Pruitt. You've, if I'm a Tennessee fan, I've got to be thinking, what is life like with Mike Leach right now? First of all, it's fun. You're definitely winning games. You've got an offense, and you're almost guaranteed not to lose to Georgia State. And even if you do, you might beat Alabama later on. It's 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 a much more obviously up and down roller coaster with Mike Leach, but it would have been exciting to say the least. Yeah, and that internal war, that internal fighting in Kentucky that caused him to fire John Curie as he's accepting the Mike Leach. I guess I guess he's making the offer to Mike Leach, accepting Mike Leach's acceptance. He's like out there doing it, and they call him back and fire him, and they turn around and hire Jeremy Pruitt as their like tenth choice. Man, that's it's rough right now. It's rough. So that's going to lead us into this conversation. Yeah, let's play a little game here. Yeah, you mentioned buyouts with Willie Taggart. Buyouts are very important to this discussion. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about the three year test, which I will I will give you the overview in a second. It's something that I talk about a lot. I love it. I definitely didn't. Maybe I created it. Calling it a three-year test? I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but we'll tell you what it means. And then we're going to we're gonna name these coaches that have been hired in the past you know, two years, three years, or four years and, and decide if we're the athletic director whether we're going to extend them. So we love them, right? We'll extend them. Hold on. We're not sure yet. Or fire them. Now, I want to talk about buyouts right up front. Some of these guys have ginormous buyouts. Willie Taggart, Will Muschamp. We're going to assume you're making a decision like, okay, I'm firing. I'm firing him right now. Even if I can't fire him, I've seen everything I need to know that he's never going to be great, right? So that's what we're going to play. Yeah, so pretend the buyout gonna... doesn't examine. If, if you wanted Correct. to fire him tomorrow, you could. You could. That's the point of this. So we don't want to say that, okay, well, we're not going to fire him. We want to say he's, we've seen enough on the data to indicate this guy's never going to be what we need him to be. Okay, so Alan, recap of the three-year test. A three-year test is very simply this. 
you're going to take a look at the coach's one-year, two-year, three-year results. You also are going to factor in how it looks, and you're going to factor that in relative to what the program was like before. And you want to kind of create an average for the and modern. And their historical correct. positioning within college football. The modern program, too. So not we're not going back to the 80s or 70s or 60s. We're basically starting from like the mid-90s, to which you consider to be the modern start of college football. And we're going to go up to today. And you're going to take a look at it. what's their average, you know, wins per season. How much have they done to this? What's their average recruiting ranking? Are they improving this? Is there improvement or is there not? A three-year test is special when you're talking about what you consider elite schools. Alabama, Texas, Florida, right? Those schools. That test would tell you that within that three-year period, Alan, you have to basically compete for a national championship if, if you want to be truly elite. Anything less than that is going to indicate where you are. But here's a pretty crazy fact. Outside of Dabo Sweeney, and we could argue to our boo in the face, Alan, how Clemson was in a different category. They were in a tier two school. They were not in an elite school historically. It took them a little bit extra time to build it. Outside of Dabo Sweeney, Really, every other coach will show this move within the first three years. So if you if you want to know if your coach can win a national title, they're basically going to play in a national title game within three years or be darn close to it. If they don't, you can almost guarantee you will never see your team on that kind of stage. Right. And so some of these programs are not thinking we're going to be in a national title by three year three. They're going to be on a much longer trajectory. So that's an elite program. Correct. But some of these guys are still, at a smaller program, really happy with the guy they hired, and we'll get there. And for us, we're looking at the relative. So the three-year test works either way. You're applying the the criteria depending on what kind of school you're at as an AD. So Alan and I are going to put our AD hats on, and we're going to start this game with a big name. Wow, a this name, is controversial right name off the that, bat. Yeah, a name that we wanted to see, that I wanted to see potentially come to Florida, if, of course, we said his heart was in the right place. If he, if we, as ADs, could be convinced that he was serious about the job, we had questions for him, everyone's got questions for him. Now, you are the USA athletic director, and you have to extend, hold on to, or fire Chip Kelly today. The UCLA athletic director. UCLA, yes, today. All right, so yeah, we're going to get to all the, these are all the second-year coaches. These guys are in their second year. We're starting with Chip Kelly. That's a tough one. So I have an option to extend him right now, give him a contract extension, mm-hmm. just hold on to him, sit tight, or fire him today. I, I can't extend him, obviously. I'm not going to fire him. I got I have too much invested. I'm also UCLA. I don't know that I'm going to hire someone that much better at this point. You could, certainly, but there's no guarantees. So I'm going to hold on to him. I think Chip Kelly's a hold, and the reason for that is his history. If Chip Kelly is a brand new coach, he's a guy that came from somewhere else, I think you're all over the panic button. You're seeing a lot of red flags. But you give a guy that's done it before a little bit more leash. So you hold, you wait to see what's going on this year, and they really need to step up their recruiting for next year. That's going to be a big thing for them. So we're both going to hold on to Chip Kelly. Clearly, he's underwhelmed where you want him to be. You're not feeling great about him if you're the AD there. All right. On the flip side, on the entire flip side, we're now at Texas A&M with Jimbo Fisher. He's in year two. Right. I'm not going to extend him because I gave him the largest contract in football history at like 10 years, 75 million. But I'm very excited about where I'm at. I'll just say that. I love him. You love him, right? You're stoked. You're 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 with your pals. We did this thing. Look at Florida State. They're done. Look at us. We're ascending. Yeah, this is a great hire. So, yes, yeah. you did give him the and world. And then this is going to be interesting right here because they're have a maybe the toughest schedule in college football. So maybe they're not going to it's not going to look like it on paper. But you're excited and you're ready for year three, certainly. You're definitely ready for year three and you're building towards that. And on the three-year test, he's just continuing to progress with how the program looks and feels. And that that's a home run. 
Kevin Sumlin, the man who left AM, goes to Arizona. People had high hopes, change of scenery, things didn't work out at AM. This is a tough one. Uh, you know, if I had the chance to fire him with no repercussions, I might do it. Losing to Hawaii is just a bad look. Last year was a tough year. And not that Arizona is this dominant team, but they were looking pretty good right before someone coming. You thought he might take them to the next level. He really flamed out at AM. AM is a place that will give you everything you ever asked for. And he couldn't get it done with some really big talent. That shows me he's probably not going to do it at Arizona either. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I'm firing him right now. And he's basically gotten a six year test. If you look at the data, right, major conferences, and he looks the same every year. It's a mixed bag of stuff. They lose games they shouldn't. To me, he showed you exactly where he is as a career coach, which in my opinion means you got to relegate him, and he should be coaching somewhere smaller. I just don't think he has what it takes to win you something at one of those schools. Willie Taggart. Oh, wow. Willie can, Taggart of Florida State. Can I fire him and ask for the money back? I mean, this is seemingly from here, right, Monday, September, whatever, that this is one of the worst hires ever. I mean, there. I was explaining to someone who's an FSU fan that their underachievement <laughs> last year, whatever you want to say it, how much they underachieved relative to their talent level was historic. And they were truly awful last year, and they did not get one cent better throughout the year. And then you show up here and you lose to Boise State at home. Not that that's embarrassing to lose to Boise State by any means. They looked a little bit better, but you can't feel have any kind of confidence. No, it, it is, in fact, maybe one of the worst, if not the worst, major hire. You fire him. You don't look back. We talked about this last year. I'd have fired him last year. I had Indeed. seen enough. We talked about that when we watched the film coming into the Florida game. This guy is atrocious. He's not a good leader. He does not know what he's doing. He's in way over his head. You made a mistake. However... Florida State made a huge mistake with the contract they gave him. We've talked about buyouts before. I can assure you we'll talk about them later in the season. Again, we're going to bring in an athletic director to discuss this. We love talking about it. Florida State is taking a poison pill here. What you said might be the most true. Go to Willie and say, Willie, you got to go. We need you to retire. We need you to agree to take less money. If you care at all about the program, we need you to do this. Not happening. Is that going to happen? No. no, it's not going to happen. But you can dream, which means they are in a incredible they're, bind. They're trying to dig up some dirt on them right now, I bet. They're in an incredible bind. They're in trouble. All right. Jeremy Pruitt, a guy that I highlighted last week you on like this very podcast, is saying, is Jeremy Pruitt great? No, he's not. Is Jeremy Pruitt taking them in the right direction? Yes, he is. <laughs> I am wrong. I am dead wrong. I'm going to lay this off. I'm firing Jeremy Pruitt right now, which yes. maybe seems reactionary. It's not reactionary. They had a mixed bag year last year. This is an inexplicable, absolutely unacceptable result from a school like Tennessee with the talent they have, the recruiting level they've done. They've been recruiting in the top 15, Allen, almost every year. This can't happen. There's no direction, no guidance. He's gone if I'm not. Agreed. If he had had a really good year last year, you wouldn't fire him after one game. You'd be like, okay, that was crazy. We have to at least wait. It's only one game. But I'm ready to fire. I was ready to fire him last year. I wouldn't have because that, is a bad use of resources, but if I'm a Tennessee fan, get him out. Right about that one. And it's important to note that Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern is, is definitely a great coach. They love him there. Routinely loses early season games to these schools, but his test, if you're applying it, was drastically better than what Northwestern had done before. So by the end of the season, he'd be there. Pruitt's already showing historically low levels of coaching. Fitzgerald's he, led them to their best run ever. 
Correct. And to believe now that Pruitt's trending on that, you're in an anomaly range, which again, we talk about probabilities. You're having to believe in an anomaly. Go, go, trust me on this. Go look for a coach that's going to wind up competing for an SEC title that loses their first opener to a school like that one. Go find one. I challenge you to find one, and then we'll present it next week as an alternative case. Scott Frost, my guy, love Scott Frost, would have loved to hire Scott Frost at Nebraska. Tough year one. Yeah. A lot of people thought they showed a, a lot of slower. progress. They played very well their last four games of the season. A lot of expectations this year, kind of primed as one of the top turnaround teams. They come out, they struggle, as we said, at home. What are you doing, Scott? I'm not going to extend him just because of too much variability, but I'm holding, keeping him. Yeah, I'm holding. I'm still actually optimistic about it. Me too, that. me too. But I'm not going to add years to the contract at this point. No, no. No, you got to wait. And I think, again, Scott knew this. My last comment on Scott is he knew Nebraska was probably maybe the worst possible fit for him. The guy needs to be in 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 the South, even in California, someplace where it's so easy for him to get the guys he needs. He is in an absolute speed desert out there. He knew it. He did it. I respect the fact that he honored the program. You could see now, I think, why he had the anguish he had. He knew it was a big uphill project for his style. We'll see if he can make it happen out there. So far, I still think they're trending in the right direction. So you're holding and you're optimistic. All right, Dan Mullen. We've talked a lot about Dan. I would actually put more years on his contract if I didn't have to do a big buyout. Let's say the buyouts don't exist. I'd add another year on his contract if I had to choose today. You're like, you got to fire him or extend him, or I guess I hold on to him, but you lessen your probability of keeping him. I'd put another year on there if it didn't have a crazy buyout on it. All right, I'm holding him because A, where's Dan going to go? I think he's reached the top level. <laughs> that's true. B, I don't know yet. I still don't know if Dan can take us to the elite level. That's not a that's not a negative outlook. Like we talk about at Florida, you know, where would Urban have been is a great question. Okay, now are you Urban? No, Urban's one of the top three or four coaches of all time. But it's a good kind of where would Urban be in year two, right? Where would Nick Saban be in year two? You have to ask yourself these questions. A lot of people think Dan Mullen might trend like Dabo Sweeney. Problem I have with that is Dan Mullen's been a coach for a bunch of years, and Dabo kind of showed up new at Clemson. That's not sure. exa- exactly a great comparison, but regardless, I'm very happy with what Dan's done. If I'm Scott Strickland, I'm very excited with where we are. I'm very optimistic for the future. I would love to see Dan have his own quarterback in the system playing. That'd be a big thing. I have some concerns still, like we talked about. We're going to have to show we can get there. This is early year two, but I think everyone would agree that Florida – where we are as a program is vastly improved from where we've been. And Dan had to inherit a recruiting situation where he's not a gifted recruiter anyway, but we spent a decade being rather irrelevant. So a lot of these kids, Florida wasn't something to them. So uphill battle, I feel good. I'm holding. I'm not extending yet. I haven't seen anything that blows my top off, but I'm stoked. Dan Mullen, especially in this cat category, right? He's not Jimbo Fisher yet, but... You know, well, that's Scott. also relative to right? yeah. A&M station Correct. in life, too. Exactly. So. But you look at like the, who we're looking at, the hires here. Certainly, Dan is is exceeding on this class, this hiring class. I think these other schools would have loved to have all taken Dan sure. Mullen. It's Every a good single way to, one of them would have hired him other than A&M. Yeah, it's a good look at it, other than Nebraska with Frost. But either way, so far, so good for Dan. Great performance for him, and we'll see what happens here. Chad Morris, we like, we both liked this hire at Arkansas. Yeah, you know, it's it a, a good total hire. re-envisioning of the program's identity from – from players to approach to philosophy, I'm I'm keeping. I'm not ready to give up on him yet. Yeah, definite sure. definite hold. Nothing there that shows a red flag. Nothing there that shows like, wow, we got the greatest guy ever. But definite holds. All right, Herm Edwards, quite yeah. the experiment, kind of panned and made fun of, turning out better, I think, than people oh, for may sure. have thought. Uh, me a couple on this. I expect it to be a disaster, a disaster. 
But Herman's showing if you're smart and you're capable and you're a hard worker and you do things the right way, you can be successful. I don't think he's going to take Arizona State to the highest of highs, but I expected him to be, you know, in the position where I would say fire him after one season. And they're not there, obviously. So I don't know if they want to extend him, but they're definitely keeping him. Yeah, definite hold after this year could be extend. A lot of people have them as a trendy pick, too. Yeah, we'll see. see So if that happens, then you'd be in extend range. I'm also on a hold. All right, Joe Moorhead. Obviously, I love this guy. I love my guy, Joe Moorhead. He's in year two. Would you extend him here right there? No, I'm holding. Definite holding. Again, I'm a three-year test guy. I'm a data guy. As much as I love somebody, I love the data more. So right now with Joe, I think it's all last year. I think he underachieved. Mm-hmm. That's primarily like what I think I talked about. In my opinion, it was a style underachieve. I'm going to be okay with that as an AD. You're transitioning. He's got to show me something within three years. He's already shown me he's recruiting very well. That's one uptick. So I'm, I'm holding. I'm holding. I'm optimistically holding. I'm I'm with you there. All right, let's talk about the year three guys. And let me jump in and lead us. The first guy you mentioned... I assume I know what you're going to say here, but Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. Legend right now. He's on. He's tracking as a legend. This is a guy that's tracking as uber elite, although hasn't had the hardware yet. You have to kind of start looking at something here. New defensive coordinator this year. Yes. I was going to say, this is what I love about what he's doing. He's First of all, he's 35, which is sure. a joke. And second of all, he's adjusting the weakness of his program. He obviously has some unbelievable offensive juggernaut going out there. He also has an extremely favorable situation playing in the Big 12. He really only has to face Texas every single year. That's going to be anywhere near being on his level of skill. Unfortunately for him, he does get a Tom Herman Texas, which is a good Texas. He's not getting a Mac Brown end of tenure Texas. He's not getting a Charlie Strong Texas, but this is stratospherically amazing. Would you and, give him and- the Jimbo contract? I'd give him the Jimbo contract. Yeah, I love him. And I think at this point in time, I would I would hire Bob Stoops if I'm any other school as my next coaching analyst. Because Bob Stoops said, on record, this guy's better than me. This guy will be better than me. You have got to hire Lincoln Riley. Wow. At the time, Lincoln Riley was 31 years old. So maybe Bob Stoops is the world's greatest coaching consultant. He should, I don't yeah, know. he should go into the business. There you go. Okay, Jeff Brom, a guy that I really liked at Purdue, was surprised he stayed there. They just lost to Nevada on a last-second kick. They had a lot of good feels around that program last year. How are you feeling about them right now? Man, they were so high last year. Yeah. And Jeff Brom did not choose to take a bigger job, which no. I think raises a lot of questions. I respect it, but you're at Purdue. Purdue was so bad before he came in. They won one game, three games, three games. He's clearly elevated them. They lost their opener, which is not what, you, of course, you want to do. I think... I'm I'm holding if I'm Purdue. I'm tempted to extend for like a while. And obviously they've done this already, right? Yeah, this is why we're kind of, they already extended. Yeah. So I'm saying now I'm holding. I don't think I'm nervous about my decisions. Probably better would look at that. I'm not nervous that I made the wrong decision last year. I don't think that's the case with him. Uh, but Purdue is just weird. It's hard, hard, hard to win there. If you find someone who's willing to stay at that job, yes. you just keep tacking years on to the end of that contract. Agreed. All right, let's keep moving. Tom Herman at Texas. Tom Herman's three-year test is very interesting because this year, it hangs on this year. He's right. clearly drastically improved the program. They've come far, far, far from the end of the Mac Brown tenure and the Charlie Strong tenure, and they're much better footing. So, I'm not, I mean, you know, this is, this is where it gets really extreme with this three-year test, Alan, is if you're truly being true to the test, you basically fire the guy at the end of three years if you don't think he's proven he can be in the elite category because if you're Texas, you feel like you can win. Now, I'm going to say one other thing. You only fire the guy if you feel like the next superstar ceiling guy is available, right? So let's factor that in. Let's say I'm AD. Tom Herman goes through this year. We win like nine games. Doesn't look great against Oklahoma. Maybe I say to myself, Tom's ceiling is here, 
But now this next guy, who I think is the next Scott Frost, is the next Jimbo Fisher, is the next whatever, it's worth taking a shot on, right? I'd go for that guy. If right. that guy's not available, I'm happily holding on to Herman. So right now I'm holding on to Herman. I'm actually pretty excited about what he's done. But he's going to take that next corner step at a school like Texas to prove to me he can compete with the big boys. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy in this range because obviously you're happy with what they did last year. But he's not blowing the doors off yet. If he's the guy that everyone projects him, everybody projects him to be, they're going to have a great year. So he's actually dealing with his own shadow a little bit of the hype around him. Because he's just a guy like, oh, yeah, this is a young up-and-coming. If he's Lincoln Riley, you're like, oh, yeah, we're really excited about him. But he was so hyped. He's the most sought-after guy coming in. So he's dealing with his own reputation a little bit here. All right, Ed Orgeron at LSU. What are you doing here? This I one, know you're going to fire him. I would have already fired Ed Orgeron <laughs> at year one, not because of anything he did, just because I felt like he was atrocious and terrible and he was going to train wreck the program. But credit to LSU here. And credit to Ed Ordron. Look, I like Ed Ordron. The more I hear the guy talk, he just seems like a guy that if you talk with the guy, he'd be a likable guy. You wouldn't understand most of what he's saying, but you'd like the guy. He seems like a nice guy. I'm going to give him a lot of credit for being a humble, a humble guy. He somehow made it to the top of the coaching tree. But if you're humble enough to let other people coach for you and not take that personally, it's like an ego trip. He's not a control maniac. I'm going to give you credit. And second of all, what they've done there is obviously working. And look, Ed is is great at recruiting. More importantly, he's in maybe the second easiest state of all to recruit in, Louisiana. Georgia is probably number one. There are tremendous athletes there year in and year out. This team will always be loaded with talent, and now he's coaching them indirectly. It's a marriage that's working. So right now, I'm not going to extend Ed Orgeron because Ed still feels like a figurehead. His contract's already long enough, but I'm I'm pretty excited. And this year, I think, is the bellwether year. If they do not yeah, get we'll something see. done this year— then you have to reconsider where you are. Because again, LSU is is Alabama level. You've got to wonder who can take you to that next level. Yeah, I'm going to hold them there as well. Okay, Charlie Strong at USF. I'm firing him, and we knew that. When they hired him at USF, we said, he's already shown us enough. This is He's not a good coach. He's, he's a defensive coordinator. He had to go back to that. There's no shame in that. The guy just is not good at being the leader of a program. And if he was going to win eight or nine games at USF, you'd probably take that yeah. for the stability that he would bring you. But I don't think he's going to accomplish that. P.J. Fleck at Minnesota. This is interesting. He had a lot of fanfare, too. And if you look at how he's trending at Minnesota, he's he's like trending flat. Like he's slightly above where their historical numbers are, like six they're, wins, They're wins. better than people historically give them they credit. Are. They never win big, but they're usually no, not terrible. They're not. And so he's right there, six wins, seven wins. This year I think is an important year for him to show some progress. I think you're probably going to have a little – again, you're Minnesota, so your three-year test tends to be a little longer. You can't pull in – as many of these upstart names. And P.J. Fleck was a pretty good upstart, exciting candidate. But I do think he's going to have to start showing some actual discernible improvement. Uh, because, again, like you said, Minnesota is historically a decent program at times. And he's basically just at the average level. Right. I, If I'm then, I'm happy with him. He's a young guy. I'm going to hold him. Or if you know, if he came to me today and was like, hey, you need to extend me or I'm going to leave, I would extend him. Yeah, I think you probably do a small extension and you try to avoid the buyout situation. But, again, you don't want to be turning. It's not the same at that level of program. You can't turn over coaches every three years and get great coaches because no. you're not as attractive. So it's a different rubric you're looking at. All right, why don't you lead us through the fourth years? Right, let's start with Justin Fuente. This guy was like the Tom Herman of his class, right? He, people were so hyped on this guy. He very curiously, in my opinion, took a Virginia Tech job. I think that right. was curious. That's a fine job, but he could have had a much better job. I think maybe now he's paying for it. Loses to Boston College. I think the Virginia Tech fans are a little 
weary of yeah, what's going on now. Yeah, you keep waiting for them to break through, break through, break through. It's been a disappointing tenure from the moment he got hired there till right now. Off the field stuff with some of his guys. I'm not going to fire him, but I'm not extending him either. And if the season doesn't go like we want, maybe we take a look at it. He's probably going to get another year regardless, unless this is just an abysmal, abysmal season. But I will say it's been disappointing. Yeah, I'm holding him this year. He's got a full season. He's got to turn it around. I think he's got to get to, to nine wins or so to really prove he's had some sort of transition campaign. If not, do you look at a guy like Mike Norvell? Would Mike Norvell go there? You know, I don't know. Hire another Memphis coach? Yeah, that's the question, right? But that's what you're looking at, and that's what makes these questions interesting. So I think for Fuente and Virginia Tech, I think you're probably going to five-year plan. I think as an AD, what you have to be careful of, if you miss twice, you go Muschamp McElwain. You get in the Florida situation where basically an entire generation of kids knows really nothing about your program. And so you have to be careful with that next one. All right. Barry Odom at Missouri. A this guy that was dead. So weird. We pronounced him fired. I pronounced him fired when he was whatever he was at Missouri yeah. in year two. And he he survived. He resurrects himself. Here we are again at year four. Missouri fans are kind of over it. What are you thinking? I don't know. They're so strange. They're so weird. They lose when they shouldn't and win when they shouldn't. And in, in weird ways. They're an, they've been an offensive team when he's a defensive background coach. If he came to me in, today and said, you got to extend me or I'm going to leave. I'll be like, let me drive you to the airport. But I'm not going to fire him today either. Now, maybe we get in the year and I do, but I'm going to hold right now. So I think Missouri's in a weird place. Uh, they're in the SEC. They got right. a little bit of a brand name. They obviously pulled in Kelly Bryant, which is a high-level transfer to pull in. They had Drew Locke, who's in the NFL. I think you have to capitalize on where you're at. So I, I'm, I'm going to fire Barry Odom. And today. again, I'm, yeah, today I'm going to fire him. I think I've seen enough. I think that he hasn't put it together. I think he's violating the hallmark of like my own coaching rubric, which is that if you're terrible at your own specialty, how can I trust you with anything else? And he's proven to be consistently horrible at his own specialty on defense. They'll occasionally play okay, but it's a huge step down from Gary Pinkle on those defenses. Just a massive step down. So to me, I don't trust him anymore. I think I'd let him go. I think I'd bring someone else on. Uh, again, Missouri's weird. Who can you get there? It is an SEC job, so you could get somebody. Right. And I think they still have enough of a brand where they've won, they've competed, that you've proven you can win there. I don't want to let that get too tarnished. Firing him right now is probably a little extreme given the way he finishes the seasons out. Uh, but I think I've seen enough from him to indicate he's just probably not going to magically become a guy at Missouri that's going to be where Gary Pinkle was. And that's the bar. That's the bar right now. That's true. Matt Campbell, a guy we were both excited about, kind of lit the world on fire at Iowa State, has competed in some fantastic games against top-level opponents, survives a very tight game, which sometimes happens, like you said, at Iowa State. you got to kind of take your medicine and realize where you are. How do you feel about Matt? I'm extending him, for sure. I mean, you're still looking at Iowa State's historical mean. They are so far above it and with hopes of future. And, like, you you don't get guys like that at your program. I thought it was weird that he took the job in the first place, kind of like a Fuente, but this has worked out. Yeah, I mean, you're not giving the Jimbo contract, but you're like, how many year, more years would you like on this contract? This is an absolute extent, and it's funny. You can see like the level of relative ability. Matt Campbell's above the Iowa State job, but he's still there, and I'm keeping him there as long as I possibly can. Totally agree. Dino Babers at Syracuse. Syracuse was once really good, fell way off the wagon for a long time. Dino Babers returning them seemingly to yeah. a, a much better position. I would extend him as well. I mean, he's kind of an older guy than you think. We talked about it kind of in the hiring process. But, yeah, if you're Syracuse, you're really excited. You're still on the way up, maybe. You haven't you haven't hit the ceiling yet. Maybe he's not going to take you to a national championship, and that would be the probability at a place like Syracuse. 
But you don't know where you're going to go with him yet, and that's really exciting. Yeah, I like that. Uh, he's an Art Bryles guy. He runs the same kind of offense, the veer and shoot. Uh, I like it. It fits well with the kids. He's obviously raised the profile. The fact that we're talking about Syracuse at all in a national game at any point in time, which we'll highlight this week, is is indicative of that. And I'm thrilled if I'm Syracuse that I found a guy that's kind of brought the program back to some sort of relevancy. I love, too, that you look at his name and you look at him and you're like, wait, that's Dino Babers? So fun. I'm expecting this old Italian guy, I feel like. Yeah, no, it, it is actually quite fun. A great name, too, Dino. Uh, Kirby Smart at Georgia. I mean, Kirby's going to get whatever extension he wants. Now, but here's the really interesting thing. Have they already peaked? They came within a play two years in a row of being in the national championship, plus winning the national championship, and they fell a little short. Have they already peaked? Maybe, maybe not. And I'm sure Georgia right now would sign up for another decade of Kirby if it meant the same level of being in the conversation every year. But, man, they've been as close as they you could possibly be to the top end of the sport and came up just a little bit short every time. So, I don't know. That's that's such a high bar to judge him against, though. But yeah, of course I'm, you're I'm extending Kirby for his life if he wants it. For sure. I would, I would, too. You've got to give him the extension. But just like to say yeah. – you know, I, you know, if you reach that level and you don't quite get there, there's going to be a lot. This is Mark Richt. They got so close, and the frustration started to set in. Yeah, and it's totally fair. I think if if Kirby Smart were coaching when Mark Rick was coaching, he probably would have won some titles. He's going up against some historical juggernauts in True. Alabama, some of the greatest teams to ever play college football. And he's almost, he's really been outside of Clemson, the only team that's proven he could beat them. Should have beaten them twice. Hasn't, though. You're right. And that that's a thing to keep in front of. But if you're Georgia... If that's the rest of my life as a Georgia fan, I'm playing for SEC titles and I'm losing to the best team in college football. I'm in the playoff and I'm losing like heartbreakers at the end. That's incredible. That's all you really, I mean, it sucks, but that's all you really want as a fan is to consistently be relevant every single year. Georgia's top five with a, a number one or number two. That's what you want. You want the opportunity. But what if I told you like he's going to be there 10 years and he's not going to win that championship? Would you fire him yeah, just for I the opportunity? It, uh, it depends. I mean, I don't, I don't think so. If it's, if it looks like this, no, right. At some point in time, plays have to be made. Well, I that's what I'm saying. Well, that's just the question that yeah. you are going to, you can't really know the future. So of yeah. course you'll take yeah. the opportunity. But if I could just tell you, yeah, cause some schools, like if you're Matt Campbell at Iowa state True. and I go, you're gonna have 10 years of Matt Campbell. Incredible. You'd be like, yes, I'll Absolutely. take it. You're like, you're not going to win a national title. Don't care. This is great. Yeah. But that's not really acceptable at Georgia right now. No, it's not, and that's interesting. I think, again, it, for me, it's always style, right? Like, they could have won those titles. Sure. There were a couple curious coaching decisions that were made, obviously, last year. Big very part. curious coaching decisions were made. If they were all like that, I might change the answer to my question. If they were more like the first Bama game where there's some plays to be made, again, cover two, probably a bad call there, but that's going to happen sometimes. I think so far, Kirby's he's also so – he's in his first coaching job. And he's, he's an unqualified success. We're, this so, is nitpicking. Yeah, I mean, it's like at this point in time, you're so freaking thrilled with that. He's not Will Muschamp, that's for sure. All right. Speaking Clay, of. Yeah, speaking of Will Muschamp. Let's do Will Muschamp. Will Muschamp at South Carolina higher when South Carolina hired them. Both of you and I said on this podcast, what have you done? You needed to capitalize on who you were, on your brand name, your sending brand, and you've just hired someone that is absolutely guaranteed to bring it right on back down. All right, fired. Let's move on. Gone. And so he successfully, Will Muschamp has, tarnished the Florida brand and a tarnished South Carolina brand. So both those brands were white hot. Urban Meyer, yeah, we had a down year. Leaves the brand white hot. South Carolina, hotter than it's ever been. Will Muschamp. You want a guy to train, train your program? Hire Will Muschamp. The cooler. Take you down. All right, last but not least, a guy that probably already should have been fired. Yeah. I'm sure we're both firing him. Clay Clay Hilton at USC. He's, it's been weird. He's it's almost like Barry Odom-esque where he's done just enough to like throw you off his scent. But... 
I would fire him, certainly. And I think he will get fired this year. You can't be average at a place like USC or below average. And he's done stuff at that school where, you know, lost some games and had some results that really I don't aren't acceptable. You said, I think last week, you're in LA by yourself. You should be a king of college football. And they normally are. That's, you know, they drop below, but they're always going to return because that's their level of like, that's their mean. That's their historical norm is being right at the top of the sport. And that's where they should be. If you have a good AD and a good coach, now that university is a mess from top to bottom. So who knows what they need a new AD first. We'll they see how definitely it goes. need a new AD. Yeah, you can't have you can't have Lynn Swan in there doing what he's doing uh, at this point in time. It's definitely fire clay. It should have been fired last year. They should have a new guy in there. And USC maybe one of the easiest places to win in all of college football. You do play Notre Dame every year, every single year. But honestly, like the Pac-12 is always soft. You can pull the absolute best kids every single year from California, and there are a lot of good ones. And they don't, as we famously know, Alan here in Florida, want to really go anywhere else. It's not like Florida kids that are like, hey, I'll go anywhere. Florida kids will go anywhere. They want to play good football. California kids, they want to stay in California. They want to play for USC. It's a built-in advantage. There's a lot of good ones. So the fact that you're not winning nine or ten games every year at USC is a major red flag. He did that the first two years. Fell off a freaking cliff last year. He's got to go. He should have went. And now I think he's in big-time trouble this year. So I think they're going to wind up having another potentially losing record, in which case you could have avoided that by bringing somebody else in. Okay, James. Anything else to add before we turn our attention to the mighty Tennessee Martin? No, that was super fun. I hope all of you guys enjoyed that. We obviously spent a lot more time talking about that because this is a weird, with all these bye weeks we have, it's a yeah. weird week. Like Tennessee Martin, there's not film study, right? They're they're not a Division One opponent. There's nothing to talk about schematically. So we figured let's talk a lot about the big storylines and then get you into the game and spend the second half talking about the Florida storylines, which of course you will. And then really from this point on for the rest of the season, it's going to feel much more like our normal podcast. Film study from the previous week, film study on the upcoming week, discussion of X's and O's, coaching decisions, etc. So this was kind of our last chance to get a lot of the big narrative. Yeah, it was fun. I hope you enjoyed this. If not, we won't do it again for a while because we'll have games to talk about. Okay, James, let's talk about Tennessee Martin. They are an FCS school. They did win last week. But they went 2-9 and nine last year. We're going to be playing them at 7.30 in the Swamp. So they lost last year 45-23 at Ole Miss. And in 2017, lost to Missouri. Yeah, they're not a powerhouse FCS program. There are some teams in the FCS that will bite you. Historically, this has not been one of them. A little quick overview. Their coach, Jason Simpson, has been there for 13 years. They've actually been good under him. They win seven or eight games quite a bit in the FCS. But as you mentioned, a powerhouse FCS program proves they can beat or play close with sometimes, occasionally, rarely, a Power 5 team. They've never done that. So a little bit of a note here, tied to UF. Their defensive line coach, coach Clint McMillan, played for the Gators when Mullen was actually the offensive coordinator. So a little bit of a UF connection, not much. James, anything to note on them? So they do have a first, you know, first year starter, which is not a freshman, but first year starters at both running back and quarterback. They're your classic FCS team. Uh, so there's not a lot to report on what they run or how they run it, right? They're overmatched on the lines. I think one thing that's interesting strategically about Tennessee Martin, and this is in fact interesting, their offensive coordinator for several years now is also their offensive line coach, and he was an offensive lineman. So that's rare. Steve Adazio was our, you know, one year experiment at that. That's very rare. But they kind of like make their bread and butter on the offensive line. 
which you don't typically see the small schools. They kind of give up on the offensive line and say, this is going to be atrocious. Let's spread the ball out and do stuff. Tennessee Martin, that's where they hang their hat, is they have a, every single year, they have Very a perennially good offensive line for an FCS school. They're still going to be worse than Miami's offensive line, but I would expect them not to make as many mental mistakes. So it should be something interesting. They're not just going to give us gaps to run through, easy things to get through. So kind of kind of a fun matchup to watch our D Maybe more so than your typical FCS Than what you'd school. expect. So that's kind of fun. That's a fun thing to pull out. Right. And so just putting this game in context, um, we're going to win the game. If we don't, we should close up shop as a program probably, uh, considering where we are currently and where they are. And so don't, again, we'll talk about this after the game, but we don't want to get too high. You know, wow, we've seen some of these games. You beat Eastern Michigan by 60-3. to It doesn't necessarily mean anything. You don't want to look poorly doing it, but we don't want to get too high or too low coming out of this game. All right, so mostly we're going to talk about us. That's that's all we're going to really say about Tennessee Martin. Um, They are who they are. Uh, So it's a chance for really UF to get things right. Um, Obviously a very sloppy game against Miami. We said a couple weeks ago, coach's dream. You win the game and you put a ton of stuff on tape that you can correct, that you can look at and show the guys, hey, listen, I know you are maybe reading your own press clippings a little too much. There's a lot to improve on. So we're going to talk about a few of these things. But first, let's talk about Franks, Felipe. He's the headline of every story for probably as long as he's going to be the quarterback this year. Maybe we thought that that wouldn't be the case this year. Still is right now. There's a lot of talk um, and maybe even just some people coming back to us and asking, you know, in terms of Franks' progression, did he regress or is he the same guy? James, just to clarify, do you feel like he has regressed since last year based off that Miami film? No. So last week, a lot of a lot of articles, a lot of national pundits, Kurt Herbstreit, Greg McElroy talked about the regression of Felipe Franks. I don't think that's true. Uh, we talked about the progression and said in this very podcast, you know, the main thing he really progressed on was getting us in and out of plays, which was significant. And everything else that he progressed on was rather small. And that's kind of our main takeaway, right? If you want him to win a national championship, if you want him to beat Georgia or Alabama, you had to see a big progression in some quarterback fundamental skills. We did not see that. So his progression relative to what you wanted wasn't there in the one-week film. He did not regress. He's not a worse quarterback than he was last year. I'm not sure how that even really got started outside of maybe Kurt Herbstreit on the broadcast saying it. And I think Kurt was really frustrated with some of the character stuff. His behavior. As were we. And we said the same thing. I think his behavior continues to be very immature. I am not someone who subscribes to 20 and 21-year-olds being held to a standard of a 10-year-old. Are you a kid? I guess. I mean, I guess our society defines kids as anyone under 30. You're not a kid, though. I mean, to me, you're a grown adult. You can handle yourself. You can make decisions. You can do basically everything in society. You can't continue to act like a child on the field, especially when you're the quarterback. That's a regression only because I think he's more confident. So now he feels like he has more lead way to say what he wants to say. I'm not going to get crazy about that. We didn't get crazy about it last week. I think it's important for this podcast view that we feel like Felipe progressed a minute amount, which was disappointing because we needed to see a significant level of progression. Well said. So we were disappointed. But the regression part on film is not true. There's not a regression on film. He's definitely not worse on film. He is, as you said, Alan, it was so great. That was a microcosm of his whole career in the, in the one Miami game. And that was really well said. And, and it was a microcosm with some progressions in some things. But this, this, this concept that he regressed, not true. Not on film, not the way we see it. And, and he's, he's you know more or less the same with a few progressions here and there. And obviously, he's got time to work on them. We continue to hope 
that some of these things will get better and better. I just think, and I want to, I want to keep circling back to this. Why am I more negative on Franks than others? I put a lot of stock in quarterback fundamentals. I put a lot of stock in how you move in the pocket, how your footwork is, when the ball comes out, and how you see the field. I put a lot of stock in that. Those are things Franks continues to be a project in. And we knew that, Alan, when we took Franks. Franks was considered a four-star with a ton of physical talent. He was considered a major project. He was not a guy that was really coached. Uh, like Boise State's guy was, right? Like Will Greer was, to have all those little technique things down. And he's just been slower to get some of those nuances of quarterbacking, but those are often the things that lead to success and failure in a big game. And those things are really hard. Like you you don't learn that overnight. Now, obviously he's had some time in Mullen's system. He's been a starter for a couple of years now. Probably shouldn't have been a starter his redshirt freshman year. That was That was a mistake, I think, by the previous coaching staff. Again, when I say he's the same guy, I don't mean that he can't improve or hasn't improved. But what you are hoping for is maybe that there is a big leap, which that doesn't happen often with quarterbacks, but it can happen. That's why you would hope for it. But most people don't take a big leap. They make small gains over time. And Felipe, you know, hopefully he'll continue doing that through the course of the year. And by the end of the year, maybe he's 10% better. And maybe that wins us a game. I don't know. But I think most people are disappointed in just his top end and his bottom end. That he's still capable of throwing an interception at that point in the game was just really, I mean, the Spurrier face told the story. So if you're hoping that he wouldn't ever do that kind of stuff again, well, I guess he still can. But he can still make plays to win you the game too. So, again, I want to see. I want to see him not have those kind of back-breaking mistakes in the game. Now, he's not going to have the opportunity to ha- to do that for better or worse against Tennessee Martin. So that's what we're looking for throughout the course of the season. James, what else are you looking for from this game, either from Franks or the rest of our offense? Well, as a closing point on Franks, Alan, I want to ask you a question because this, okay. is, this is an interesting one, and I'm curious to your answer. All week long, he had his mother come out and make some some tweets and public comments about how she doesn't understand why the fans of Florida, presumably her son, are not supporting her, but they're against her son. Then on the other side, you get McElroy and Herbstreit who are saying that Franks is sort of the antithesis of what a quarterback should be, almost singling him out for bad behavior. Um, Trevor Lawrence doesn't play well, they say, but they're okay supporting him, but Franks doesn't play well, and he's all these things. Is the heat on Franks too much? Is he causing some of this? Is it just Florida fans? The common story is like, well, Florida fans are ruthless. What's your take on why Franks tends to be catching so much heat? Well, fan, again, this came up with Andrew Luck. Fan is short for fanatic. So I don't think that we're always rational about the thing that we love the most. Uh, The Colts fans booed Andrew Luck on the sideline of a game after he retired. I mean, so... Every fan base is capable of bad behavior. There's some percentage of every fan base that you would like to cut out and say, please don't identify with our university or our our team. Uh, Of course, we don't have the power to do that. Some fan bases is quite a large number. I don't think that UF is so unique that we have that much bigger a percentage than other teams. We are a high-profile place, so we get some crap from the media when stuff goes wrong. I think with Felipe... Again, I don't need him to be like the choir boy 
who is does everything perfect all the time. And I don't think Florida fans don't like emotion, right? So Tim Tebow, the most popular player ever, was a highly emotional guy. I think what they're looking for is there's there's kind of some animosity there. And some of that is probably born from Frank's experience. Some of that's probably due to social media where you can hear every negative thing said about you if you just want to look on your phone. I think what people would like to see from Frank's is that he hasn't shown it yet. I mean, Tebow, you could almost take anything from him because he had put it all on the field, given his guts, and we won. So I, I think if Franks had played great up through last year and had an idiot moment like he did, they'd be like, don't worry about it. You're our guy. I mean, of course, people are going to say crazy stuff on the Internet, but it wouldn't be that kind of response. So I'm not looking for him to be a choir boy or do everything I want him to do. I would disagree. We talked about in the South Carolina game, the shushing the crowd. I wouldn't have done that. I don't need him to do everything I think he should do behaviorally, but there is a, a lack of maturity, a lack of understanding, I think, what his how his actions come across, and that is more disconcerting. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. I think that there's always going to be criticism of quarterbacks in college football now. I think fans feel like they have some sort of right to say these things. Oftentimes, it's not personal. I think with Franks, it's become more personal because Franks has made it personal. You know, I think that Franks has lashed out against fans. I think that Franks, from what I know about being a teammate to his own team, has handled things very poorly. Uh, I think that Dan Mullen may be overprotecting Franks, which is leading to a teenager that's getting a worse behavior. I'm not sure that's doing us any favors. But I think that you can't shush the crowd, then go on a media interview before game one when the whole world is watching and tell the ESPN reporter that I don't really regret doing it. I wouldn't do it again, but I don't regret 